0: Welcome to the Faith Today Podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. How the Mighty Fall is more than a cliché. It's a hard truth the Christian community has had to grapple with a lot lately. When leaders like Rabbi Zacharias and Jean Vanier, to name two really big recent ones that have come to light, are revealed as men who abused women, and not the humans we thought they were, it is shocking and just simply horrible and impossible to imagine what their victims have had to live through. At Faith Today magazine, we've been trying to figure out how we can contribute to the conversation in a constructive way, because you can read the facts anywhere. So we asked veteran writer Patricia Patty to write an article called 10 Lessons from Fallen Leaders, how churches and ministries can safeguard against abuse of power. You can find that article in the March-April issue of Faith Today. This podcast is myself, Karen Stiller, Patricia Patty, and Melody Bissell, President of Plan to Protect, discussing some of the issues behind this article and what we can all do to be more realistic about our leaders and ourselves. So Patricia, you wrote an article for the March-April issue of Faith Today, which is out now, 10 Lessons from Fallen Leaders, How Churches and Ministries Can Safeguard Against Abuse of Power. I'm going to read a couple very short excerpts from the beginning of the article. So here we go. Each time the name of another prominent Christian hits the news for all the wrong reasons, something within us dies. Something within me dies, even if it's only my own innocence or sense of trust. I feel shock, maybe even grief, betrayal, anger. But there are lessons to be learned from the stories of the fallen that can help shield victims and safeguard churches and ministries from the devastation that results when power is abused. And then you uh, go on and write and share with us 10 lessons. And a couple of them involve our other guest today, Melody Bissell. So we're so glad to have you both here. So, this article from Faith Today's perspective certainly wasn't meant to be what we learn from Rabbi Zacharias, but obviously the Rabbi Zacharias case is the latest and really the biggest and probably. I don't know, I think the most disturbing for me anyway, that we've heard in a long time. So I thought we could maybe talk about some of the lessons in the article, Patricia. And I'm just wondering first for you, were there lessons or insights that surprised you as you worked through your research and and your interviews?
1: Well, as as you know, Karen, that um, the learning Always happens on a on a deeply personal level in in some way when you're researching a story. And for me, one of the first things that I realized was a personal lesson that is that I've tended to be a person who has esteemed and revered people of great intellect and obvious leadership skills too much. So um, I need to be aware of that tendency in myself and watch for it. Uh, second thing would be just how much human frailty and sinfulness can enable cultures in which these kinds of travesties of justice happen. For example, it's not just the fact of family members and friends being on the board of a church or organization that can lead to trouble because of a lack of accountability for the leader or the tendency to rubber stamp whatever the leader wants, but it's anyone who's so blinded by the light and charisma of the leader that it can lead to the same outcome, right?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, Let me jump in there for a second, Mm -hmm. because this idea of, and you, you bring this out in the article, I thought really well, that we are all sinners and all capable of anything. I mean, that's sort of what we believe, theologically at least, even if it challenges us to believe it personally. But in the article, you're using that, I think, to show that our leaders are capable of anything, in fact. And obviously, we don't want to always be expecting the worst from our leaders, but we have to know that they the, the pedestal is not real.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. You know, I would say that it's, it's a related thing that I learned, and this didn't even make it into my article, but I've been mulling it over ever since. And it came from my interview with Jeffrey Greenman, who's the president at Regent College. And he said that increasingly evangelicals are being sucked into celebrity culture. And one of his theories, um, he said in a weird way, is that we feel important and validated and supported by ourselves when there are revered figures that we can identify with. We feel good just by association. So we feel better about ourselves because there are these you know huge public figures who are kind of carrying the torch for us and it validates us because we're already feeling insecure about our place in society, because we're in a minority. So I found that really interesting, and I've been thinking about that a lot. That is interesting. Let's, let's talk about Greenman's
0: formula, which I thought was very helpful. And he's talking, um, of course, Jeff Greenman, president of Regent College, ethics scholar, theologian, talking about things to watch out for. And he has this formula, isolation plus pressure minus accountability equals danger. And that really jumped out at me. Melody, as someone who works in protection
2: and prevention,
0: does that formula ring true?
2: Absolutely. I think risk always increases when there's isolation. And we often will say never, ever, ever be in a position where you are vulnerable to isolation and avoid isolation as much as you can. And also, I think accountability is key. Those are two guiding principles for reducing the risk of any kind of power differential where abuse could happen. So those key words of accountability and avoiding isolation are so important. How about you, Patricia? When he
0: said that, like I know as a writer myself, when I'm interviewing someone and they say something like, Great. I'm like, ah, got (laughs) I've got my great thing. Like I when I read that, I thought it's so simple, but it really I found it very impactful that formula. Was that like that for you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Isolation plus pressure minus accountability equals danger. You know, great leaders, even not so great leaders, (laughs) I think that just people in positions of leadership do face a lot of pressure. And if you take away the support, whether it's close friends or mentors or, you know, colleagues or board members that they can be accountable to, you're
0: asking for trouble. Yeah. And then I was thinking you could add into his equation, you know, multiplied by fame. Right. And, but, you know, I almost like, even as we're saying this, I almost feel like, are we making excuses for terrible behavior? (laughs) I don't, I know that's not what we're trying to do, but it almost feels like it. Like when we say, oh, the pressure, oh, the isolation. And then we know there's no excuse for what, certainly what has been revealed in the Fuller report from RZIM. But so I guess, Patricia, I'm wondering, too, this article went to print just before that Fuller report came out full of details and disclosure about uh, what happened with Ravi Zacharias. Was there anything after you read that report that you second-guessed in the article or thought you would expand? Oh, man, did I... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Did I ever? I I admit that I I read that report. And then the very first thing I did was go back and reread my article. Because I think, in my mind, as I was writing the article, the 10 lessons, Ravi, in my mind, was guilty of adultery, maybe even serial adultery. But the report made clear that he was actually a sexual predator, and probably had been for decades. So the scope of his deception and the number of his victims and the depth of their victimization was so much more than certainly I imagined. Um, I think by and large the findings that I present in the article still stand, but I do think that some of the things might've been a little bit different had I read that report before I wrote it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I I think too that the lessons are meant to help churches and ministries get better at protecting everyone. We mentioned about boards earlier. Melody, I'd love for you to talk into that for a moment about how boards are structured in ministries. And I think this could happen in churches too, especially independent churches without structural oversight. What should boards be like for leaders?
2: I think this is so important. And I just want to add something to what Patricia said, this wasn't just sexual abuse and sexual predatory behavior. There there was a whole element in that investigative report around spiritual abuse, too, Mm -hmm. and um, emotional abuse that came out even from the board members, where when people tried to raise concern, when the first victim came forward, just how they ridiculed her, where they criticized them as a couple, where they were silenced. And I think what boards need to take into consideration and learn from this is one, we need a safe whistleblower policies. So that means a safe place where individuals can bring their concerns and that they will be heard that they will not only be listened to but that they will be heard and believed and validated there have been times that i have sat on boards and i've had the one voice that goes against other individuals on the board and i can be i can be left feeling very small and not heard and my voice not recognized because people of power and influence are trying to silence one or two people. So I think that boards need to really take a look here and the whole concept of integrity, excellence, holiness. I think board members need to be willing to be disciplers, you know, and if someone is hurting and brings a concern, instead of just trying to silence that person, really listen to them. And the whole concept of apology, when we see an apology letter come from a board, they need to be willing to put their names to that apology.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I, uh, let's let's backtrack a little bit about the whole whistleblower thing. Mm It just strikes me how much courage it takes to say <laughs> something that is going, you know, is going to be so refuted and hard to believe. And I mean, this is maybe not a good example, but I was thinking even about when I'm in a room, say with people I like, their friends, and someone says a joke that is inappropriate or uh, makes me feel uncomfortable, and we're supposed to say something we're encouraged to say something. And I, I find it impossible to say something. To I don't want to hurt my friend. I don't want it to be get awkward. I don't want to be the person who ruined the party. And th- this is a million times more difficult than that. And I just can't imagine the courage it takes to be the the lone voice in the room, especially if you were a victim, I mean, especially speaking up as a victim. So let's maybe talk about that a bit more. Melody, how can our churches and our ministry organizations be set up to believe well, to listen well, understanding that people are innocent until proven guilty, but that people need
2: to be able to speak and be received well? I think that we need to have compassionate People, empathetic people who are willing, who will stand in the gap to take concerns and be a sounding board for people that have concerns. So if you don't feel comfortable challenging a group at a party, then there is some place where you can bring your concern after the fact and that it will be listened to and dealt with and investigated. So do apologies help then? Like we are
0: seeing right now uh, a lot of apologies, which feels right, but
2: does it help? Is it important? Well, for victims, oh, this is can be so triggering. If they see an apology that is written and read in front of a microphone with no feeling, no remorse, minimizing what happened that can cause as much damage as the abuse did, if not even more, to someone's soul. So I think apology letters need to be so carefully crafted. Uh, It can be so damaging. So an example of that is to read an apology that says, we understand your pain. No, you don't understand the pain, right? So you can't try to um, identify with someone's pain. Pain is so individual. Wow. So
0: Patricia, as you think through this, and uh, as someone, you you mentioned your, I think, which is actually a lovely inclination to believe the best of people. How are you feeling about the works? I'd love, I'd like us to talk about that. Does their work still stand? Are we still going to read Ravi Zachariah's books? I remember when the Woody Allen allegations started to come out, this is years ago, and I was a big Woody Allen fan, and we immediately stopped watching Woody Allen movies. You know, I was sad about that, but it was like, oh, this actually makes us feel sick and dirty. And I'm just wondering, how are you feeling about that? Do we still read these books? Do they have a place?
1: You know, I I think that that's a really tough one, Karen, and I think it's something that every individual person needs to come to terms with themselves. I'm still wrestling through that issue. I came across a a quote recently. Uh, somebody attributed it to Martin Luther, but I haven't tracked it back. But it was that well, if if God can speak truth through Balaam's ass. God could speak <laughs> truth through, you know, uh, almost anybody, right? But the learning doesn't stop. And as I continue to dig into this whole issue, I, I've come across a book recently, it was recommended by somebody I, I, whose voice I value and, and trust. And it's called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. By Diane Langberg, and it was just published in 2020. I'm only 35 pages in, but last night, as I was reading before bed, I came across this quote, and I'd love to just read it if I could. Oh, yeah, please. um, Because it just stopped me short. So Langberg writes, deception can easily lie below the surface of a high position, great theological knowledge, stunning verbal skills, and excellent performance. As a matter of fact, those are power tools that allow people to live deceptively and to hide the fact that they are doing so. Those external factors become a motive for deception. If the enemy of our souls can appear as an angel of light, then surely an evil human being who is in fact mimicking him can appear well-clothed, theologically articulate, and beautiful to the human eye. I thought, wow, that's powerful. So she calls a spade a spade there. And if, you know, I think what it comes down to is we need to determine who is it that's writing (laughs) that book. And is that a voice that we want to listen to? Even though there may be truth in those pages, is that a voice that we want to listen to?
0: Yeah, so. yeah, and I would say also, like we're all expendable. Uh, so God doesn't actually need us. So God doesn't need Rabbi Zachariah's books, <laughs> as harsh as that sounds. Like uh, when the Bill Hybels situation came, my husband, who's a minister, removed all the Hybels books from his bookshelves and threw them in the recycling bin, and it that one, that one was uh, like, for us as, as readers, and, you know, consumers of Christian literature, that was a, that was a tough one. And I didn't, I confess, when I heard the Bill Hybels news, I found it hard to believe at first, I thought this can't be true. I had to be convinced. And it was when John Ortberg and his wife spoke into it, that I finally went, okay, it has to be true. It has to be true. And I was, I still feel really sad and upset about it. I mean, I understand that I'm not a victim here. I'm just someone who is sad about it. So again, I can't even imagine what a victim would feel like in that kind of situation.
1: But in a way, we, you know, all those of us whose trust has been betrayed, we are victims too. Maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, it feels wrong to use that word, right? But there is a right. kind of victimization. Yeah. there there's I a think. grief for sure yes yeah. yeah
2: and we are the body of Christ right so when any one of us is taken out or we take ourselves out in this case it does hurt we should be sad this should grieve the church deeply and we should make changes because of it
0: yeah well let's let's talk about that I don't think we can stop people from rising to you know levels of celebrity power. I don't see that changing. I hope we'll be a little more cynical or questioning, and not not so automatically think that they are spiritual giants because they're they are successful in their you know business slash ministry. I I hope we'll have our eyes open a bit more. But Melody, what
2: what else needs to happen going forward? Do you think? Well, I was an executive director of a um, charity at one point, and I can remember probably one of the best pieces of advice I was given was, Melody, every time you walk into a boardroom, you should have a bit of a holy fear walking into that boardroom, that they're going to hold you accountable, that they're going to ask you hard questions. They are going to establish parameters for the work that you do, and you have to stay within that sandbox. And I think that's what board members need to do. I think they need to be asking tough questions. They need, if somebody protests too much when you ask hard questions, that should be concerning to you. Alarm bells should sound off. If somebody says, no, I'm not going to let you see my technology, my computer, my phone, that should cause you concern. Every dollar that they spend, they should be able to account for it and show receipts for it. I just think we need to be so much more accountable to our boards, and our boards have to ask really tough questions. I'd love to see that happen.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Patricia, as you think about uh, the 10 lessons in the article, is there one or two that really struck you as sort of deeply true and could be done, if not easily, maybe quickly in any church or ministry?
1: You know, I think that they're they were all important, Karen. I think that the number one even the most highly esteemed, the most apparently righteous among us are capable of the unthinkable. I think that we if we keep that at the the forefront of our awareness. I've seen some pushback on social media, people saying, you know, I don't want to hear from my Christian leaders referring to Ravi Zacharias. Well, that could have been me. <laughs> right? Because it, chances are, it, it could not have been, you know, right, right. most people, right? Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are all capable of great sin. And, and so I think that I mean, you used the word cynicism. Maybe that's not quite the right attitude to take, but maybe just a healthy skepticism. Yes, right?
0: better word. I agree. Yeah, and this this again, this idea of um, we're all capable of anything doesn't not na- doesn't have to translate to therefore we're all off the hook, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not right. what that's not what we're saying. We're we're recognizing that therefore, when people we hold in high esteem or think think th- that they have it all together or something, uh, we we need to hold that lightly.
1: Well, and I think it's also that we are all capable of enabling great injustices. Yeah, you know, I'm capable of enabling a culture of celebrity and injustice to pervade because I may be too trusting of somebody and I may revere them too much, you know, for their intellect. So it, it causes me to ask the hard questions of myself. What is my role in all of this?
2: And it's not a quick fix. It's not just something that we can do and check off and say, okay, that task is done. We've got policies in place. We're good now. We need to audit those policies. We need to stay vigilant. We need to stay on top of this all the time and and check in often and invite people to challenge us and question us if there's anything that we do that is not God-honoring.
0: Yeah, it really strikes me that we need good, whoever we are, we need good friends in our lives that we can be completely transparent with and who can call us on stuff. But as we come to a close, I'd love for us to end on how we can help people who have experienced this kind of abuse and horrible mistreatment at the hands of another. Melody, how can we, how can we love them well? How can we promise to do better? And what do they need from us?
2: I love this question, Karen, because I have just f- finished writing a 250-page doctoral thesis on this very topic, where I had the honor and privilege to interview six victim survivors of abuse, asking them that very question, what do you want and need from your communities of faith to nurture your spiritual healing And I asked them about their spiritual journey of healing and what nurtured that. And unfortunately, very few of my participants said the church was instrumental in their spiritual healing, rather, in too many cases, triggering even more pain. So really, my analysis came down to individuals. It comes down to people who are willing to walk with victim survivors for the long journey of healing, people who don't try to make decisions for them but just listen to them, people who are willing to weep and lament and share in their grief and their pain, people who are not trying to quickly get them to the place of forgive and forget, but who will journey with them and give them opportunity to tell their stories and not come along inside and say, well, don't tell your story, that's too painful for people to hear. No one really wants to hear that story retold again. I think that victims also want to be part of the change. They want to be empowered Um, They don't want other victims to suffer anymore. They don't want people to try to control them because that's exactly what the offender did. The offender tried to silence them. So they need to be able to tell their stories when they're ready to tell their story. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at
0: faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada.
1: If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.